Welcome to Composer Quest. My name is Dean Sorensen. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Charlie about composition and music and arranging. And I write mainly for big band. I also... Also play the trombone. Stick around. You're going to dig it. You heard it from Dean himself. You're here on Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis. And I think this is the classiest intro music I've ever had on the show. It's Christie's Waltz by Dean Sorensen. Dean teaches jazz and composition at the University of Minnesota, and he's also a well-known name among student jazz players. He has a whole series of pieces out that he's designed specifically for younger students to play. Before I get into our talk, I just wanted to point out that you can download all of the Composer Quest episodes for free or stream them online at composerquest.com. Stick around, because at the end of the episode, you'll get to hear some listener-submitted arias, and I'll point out why I think they're awesome compositions. Now, on to my talk with Dean Sorensen. Dean, thanks so much for having me into your studio here. Well, it's uh, great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. So you've been writing, you have a whole series of music that's designed for students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done a lot of writing for young jazz ensemble in particular. And what I'll do is I'll think of a concept that I want to teach. It may be a set of rhythms, or it may be a particular harmonic progression, or something along those lines. And then I'll write a, write a tune that takes that into account. So that way, there's a performance element of it. And if a teacher or student wants to just take advantage of the performance element, they can do that and they can completely ignore the pedagogy, which I don't want them to do, but I know that it happens. Um, Or if they want to dig deeper into it, they can do that. And I know that the pedagogy is going to be very, very solid along with with the composition because it started there and it makes things a lot more uh, cohesive that way. When you're writing for student ensembles, how do you make it fun for kids to play? I mean, versus, I guess, any piece, I suppose, should be fun to play, but any particular way you do that for kids? Well, writing for young students, of course, is a challenge because you've got, you know, certain technical things that that they simply cannot do. You've got range limitations. You've got key limitations in a lot of cases. And to me, the challenge is making something fun and playable within those constraints and something that they can sound really good on and feel real good about. Um, In terms of how do you make it fun, I like to make sure that everybody has the melody at some point. I'm a trombone player. I spent years in bands and orchestras playing nothing but backup chords and backbeats and marches and things like that. And so make sure that everybody gets a chance to play the tune, keep things as rhythmically energetic as I possibly can get away with. And believe it or not, coming up with a goofy title makes a big difference. Yeah. (laughs) Like I came upon a 
over at the Old Science Museum in St. Paul, there was a sculpture of an iguana outside the building, and there was a sign on the wall that said, please don't climb on the iguana. And I thought, well, what a perfect tune title that is. And so I wrote a song called Please Don't Climb on the Iguana. It was kind of a funky rock sort of thing. I got more positive messages from directors and students who had heard that simply. And I'd ask them to sing the song. Well, how's the song go? Oh, I can't remember. But the title was really cool. between the title and like the structure of that piece at all or not particularly it's just it was just a clever title and uh what i do is i keep a file of titles in my phone and whenever i happen across a phrase that uh i think well that would make a nice title i just jot it down and maybe use it at some point yeah that's the thing about instrumental pieces is just giving people something to imagine right yeah without a lyric to help provide context the title oftentimes does that yeah how does arranging for a jazz ensemble differ from arranging something for a symphony orchestra like i know you've arranged for the minnesota orchestra sure yeah i've i've had the opportunity to write for yeah symphony orchestra concert band Mostly what I've done is for jazz ensemble. The most obvious difference, of course, is uh, the number of voices available to you, the number of instruments. Jazz ensemble, generally five saxophones, four trumpets, four trombones, and rhythm section. Um, With larger ensembles, of course, you've got larger numbers of instruments to think about. You've got a lot more colors at your disposal also. The challenge to me a lot of times when I'm writing for large ensembles is thinking that I have to keep everybody busy all the time. That's Mm. not necessarily the case, but as a performer, I don't want to be sitting there counting rests. You know, I'd like to be playing, but not all voices, not all colors are going to be consistent with whatever musical idea that you want to get across at the time. So that, I think, is probably the biggest difference, is just because you have so many more choices to make from an orchestrational perspective... How are you going to parcel these musical ideas out across the ensemble in such a way to make the whole thing sound good, but also keep the players energized? I mean, even if you're writing for the Minnesota Orchestra or a professional level group, you still want the parts to be fun. You still want them to be playable. You want them to be the kind of thing that a player likes to play. That doesn't stop when you quit writing for young band. You know, I think it's just as important at whatever level you're at. What kind of music do you like playing if someone was to compose something for you? Like, what would you say makes a fun melody line to play? Well, rhythmic interest, I think, is part and parcel to making something interesting to me. I come from a jazz background. 
I love playing in big bands. If I had my choice, I'd play in a big band full time. I, I just, I, I really like doing it. I like the sound of it. That's just a lot of fun to me. Jazz is a very rhythmic music, so it has to be something that's going to be rhythmically interesting, something that's going to have, you know, an interesting shape to it, um, something that's going to be a nice balance of going where you think it's going to go and then not going where you think it's going to go. Sometimes things get to be too predictable. Well, that's pretty boring to listen to. But if you can't predict anything and everything is constantly a surprise, I think that gets a little bit tiresome also. And so, you know, finding that, yeah, what makes a good melody? What makes a good poem? What makes a good painting? What makes a good anything artistic is all of us artists are just constantly chasing it and trying to, mm-hmm. trying to define that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've thought about that with jazz, too. I'm not a jazz player myself, mm-hmm. but I've thought about that, how you have a lot of set expectations in jazz. Right. And... I don't, do you feel like that gives you more room to be creative within those constraints? I think context is really important in all art. Jazz does have a certain set of expectations. So does classical music. So does choral music. So does country music. There's a context for just about everything that we do. And I think the creative process blossoms within that context. If you don't have a context, structure is really difficult, form is really difficult, any kind of definition is real difficult. And not that we create only to be defined, but if it's going to mean something to somebody, which I think is why we create, because we want it to mean something to somebody, generally that has to relate to something else. Now, whether that something else is the vision of climbing on an iguana or relating to a lyric that a singer happens to be singing or if something is relating to a particular preconceived context of what a piece of music quote-unquote should be. In other words, fitting within the context of jazz music, for example. I think that that helps make the art mean something to a larger number of people. Mm Mm-hmm. What conditions are present when you're feeling the most creative? Quiet. I like to be generally in familiar surroundings, I guess. I also feel that I have to have a real sense of purpose in what the piece is going to be. You know, is it going to be a teaching kind of a piece? Is it going to be something that's going to, say, commemorate an event? Is it going to be a memorial? A lot of people like to commission pieces as memorials. And I guess what I do is I sort of create a box for myself and try to work within that. I like to have certain things at least defined ahead of time. doesn't mean I can't change them, but if I don't have some kind of parameter to start with, then I guess I do feel a little bit overwhelmed, to be honest. Yeah, no, I mm-hmm. totally understand that. I feel like it's easier to do something once you have a challenge in mind. Of like, like I've been doing with this podcast, I challenge people to complete these composing quests. Right, and it's like giving them this deadline and a specific task, and it's even easier for me to do. Right. Composing uh-huh. that way, too. Yeah, uh-huh. 
When I get a commission, I like to get as much information as possible from the commissioning party. Okay, what do you want? How long do you want it to be? Do you have any idea in terms of, you know, stylistically? Other composers I know, they can't stand that. They want to have complete freedom in order to create. It works for them, but I like to have those definitions you know, if not set in stone, at least have some kind of parameters within which to work. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about Christie's Waltz. Sure. Because my friend has played that. And I, okay. I really enjoy that piece. Thank uh, you. Where did that come from? Christie is my stepdaughter. And I had wanted to write something for her for quite some time. And she's playful, she's fun, she's positive. I wrote that a number of years ago, but she is still all those things, even now that she's in her 20s. <laughs> but that's, you know, she was really the inspiration to that. You know, again, there's that context, something that would be consistent with this idea that I have about this other person who means a lot to me. And just to be able to demonstrate that musically. Would you at all be interested in playing the melody to that? Oh, absolutely. Trombone? Yeah, sure I can. You can just play that on its own, and it seems to outline the chords really nicely. I think so, and I've always been a big melody guy. I I think melody is, to me, melody along with rhythm are the driving forces. And if you're going to connect with audiences, I think strong melodies are really, really important. Most people are not going to want to listen to super sophisticated harmonies. That's kind of a trained composer, geeky kind of thing. I think. Uh, And, you know, if the rhythm gets too complex, then a lot of people can't really follow it either. And so melody is is really something that everybody can hang their hat on. And if I'm walking out of a concert and people are humming things that I've written, that's probably the best compliment that I can get. What would you say is the best piece of advice you've heard about composing? Just keep doing it. The popular wisdom is that composers sit in a room somewhere blissfully writing things down on a sheet of paper and the, you know, the ideas are just flowing so quickly that they can't get them out of their heads fast enough. And of course, you and I both know that that isn't the case. It's a lot of, like Edison said, it's 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. And a lot of it is just going back to it and trying different things out, trying different ways of solving problems. 
a lot of composition to me is simply solving problems. How do I get from here to here, either in a given melody or in a larger sense, how do I get from the beginning of a song to the end of a song? And trying to solve those kinds of problems simply takes a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of willingness, a lot of willingness to be wrong, a lot of willingness to write something and then realize the next day that, you know what, that really doesn't work all that well there. I use a lot of erasers and I use my delete key a lot. And that's okay. How does it differ when you're composing versus improvising a solo? People have said that composition is like improvisation slowed down. And I guess that is true to a certain extent. Personally, I don't necessarily equate the two. I can understand and I can see where there are philosophical similarities. But to me, composition is a little bit more of a process, whereas improvisation is a little bit more of a product, I guess. Improvisation is a product of preparation and is a product of practice. An improvised jazz solo is kind of the end result of that practice and preparation, whereas a composition is the process itself. I've been thinking about that lately. Sometimes I'll do a guitar solo mm-hmm. in a song I'm writing or something. Sure. But I'm usually not quite quick enough to totally have the solo nailed on the first try, so I end up sitting at my recording booth and replaying ideas. And for me, it is kind of a weird combo of I'm improvising these lines, but then going back and deciding, well, maybe I should have gone here instead. Right. So Uh in that way, it kind of is a mesh for me. Yeah, sure. You know, it, it is two different things because when you're improvising, you don't want to have the interruption. You don't have time to think about it. To me, if you're doing it the way that you should be doing it, the muse should really take over. Charlie Parker said, learn all your chords and scales and then forget about all that and just play. And when you hear musicians that are overly thinking their solos, they sound like overly thought out solos. They don't flow as well. So you you don't want to be thinking too much when you're on the bandstand. When you're composing, though... And the, the not thinking part of it is a part of the process. I mean, part of my own particular process is brainstorming where I just write whatever comes into my head, even if I know it, it's going to be terrible before it's even on paper. I put it on paper because I feel like I need to get it out of there. And perhaps that's the improvisatory part of the process. I, you know, I, I don't know. But going back and considering, okay, where did this particular note go? Now you're not in the improvisation process anymore. Now you're in the composition process. And those kinds of decisions get made composing, but they don't get made improvising. Sure. My friend who I mentioned earlier who played your piece, Uh I've talked to him about soloing. And sometimes he'll say he doesn't really know if he played a good solo because it was like he was in this other zone. Right. And he... Wasn't sure if that was uh-huh. a good thing or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know that I've played solos and I felt really good about them at the time. And then I'll go back and listen to the recording and think, oh, wow, that was not really that great. And the other way, too, I'll feel really lousy about something that I've played. And I'll listen to it afterwards if I have the opportunity. And you know what? I guess that, that wasn't that bad. It was actually kind of cool what I did in that one spot there. And 
You know, because improvisation is so in the moment, it's the product of preparation, whereas composition is the preparation. Well, I might put you on the spot here. I figured as long as you have your trombone here, uh huh. how would you feel about trying to just create a little short intro? Why not? All We're right. Here. Let's go for it. <laughs> Thanks again to Dean Sorensen for coming on the show. If you want to check out more of his music and his curriculum that he has for younger jazz players, go to deansorensenmusic.com. And his last name is spelled S-O-R-E-N-S-O-N. Now, like I mentioned, I want to highlight some of the listener-submitted arias for Composer Quest, Quest number 3. For those of you following the show, you'll know that I challenged listeners to compose arias, which were performed earlier this month by Twin Cities Opera on Tap. First, I want to highlight an aria by Mary Beth Hutland. She's the only one, besides me, who's done every single quest so far. For her piece, she used excerpts from The Diary of Anne Frank, and I think this is a perfect example of what Dean and I were talking about, where a song can meet your expectations and subvert them, and it makes it more enjoyable when it does both of those things. And the end of Mary Beth's piece made me think of this, because she titled it Once More, and I was expecting those words to come at some point, but they didn't come until the very end. And when they did, they also met the expectation that the 5 chord would resolve to the minor 1 chord. And all this added up to give me the chills. So here's the ending of Mary Beth's piece, sung by Amy Zimmerman. I should also point out that Mary Beth Hutlin was a guest on the show. If you missed it, go to composerquest.com slash marybeth, and there you'll hear her fascinating story about having synesthesia, and we talk about why Bach was the coolest composer ever. The next composer I want to highlight is Nicholas Mrocek, who joined me on the show to help make the quest announcement. Nick wrote this aria as a piece of his larger opera called The Triumph of Light. Now let's listen to Nick's explanation of his aria. In this particular aria, you have the tenor who falls in love with the girl he can't have. It's the evil king's daughter. The character Sinatris is forced to work in the minds of the evil king. And the daughter comes and he sees her beautiful face and he falls in love with her. Because in opera, all you have to do is see each other from a distance to do such a thing. <laughs> and that's how it happens. But here in this scene, he's talking about how her light brings life to him he's able to go on because of it one thing i really liked about nick's piece was his use of sequences especially in the beginning melody so here's colin tavetti singing when the cold dark damp of this place (laughs) 
I also wanted to mention that all these pieces were accompanied by Emily Urban, who is a fantastic pianist. So thanks, Emily. Next, I wanted to talk about Ryan Blanton's piece. Ryan has been listening to the podcast for a while, and he's done three out of the four quests. And his piece, I think, is an awesome example of a composer and performer interaction. On paper, Ryan's aria looks very serious. At one point, the chorus says, Kill yourself to the leading lady, but the performers added just enough melodrama to make this a really compelling piece. And I really love what Ryan did with the interactions between the chorus and the lead soloists. So here's Secretly Wanted, sung by Cassie McNally, Thomas Glass, Matthew Abbas, Carol Finneran, and Rick Luttrell. curious about Opera on Tap and how you can get one of your compositions performed, go to operaontap.org. I want to say a special thank you to Aaron Tavidi, who leads the Twin Cities Opera on Tap, for helping put on this concert. Couldn't have been done without her. Aaron was also kind enough to sing my aria, which I collaborated on with writer Laurie Ann Stevens. Laurie said she was channeling her southern roots when she wrote the lyrics, It's about a woman in her 30s who's down on her luck and living with her mom in her mobile home. All she wants is a good man to take her away. Since we're on the subject of my own music, I guess it's that time again. In my talk with Dean Sorensen, I mentioned that sometimes my composing ideas come from improvising guitar solos and then going back and re-editing my ideas. So this track I'm going to play for you is one I did for a movie score, and the scene called for some background music at the movie theater. So I knew I wouldn't put any vocals in this background song, Those tend to conflict with the dialogue going on in the movie. Instead of a vocal line, I decided to pick up an electric guitar, and 205 recordings later, and I pieced together a guitar solo. It's not the most efficient way to work, but sometimes I come up with better ideas that way. Like, for example, partway into the process, I realized it would be cool to have call and response between a lower guitar part and a higher guitar part. this scene, the character John is explaining to his date how computers are going to take over the world, Matrix style. Kind of heavy stuff. So I drop out all the instruments in this track, aside from the guitar, and I have it reverb out to nothingness while this more serious synth part comes in.
For you film nerds out there, this is a shift from diegetic music to non-diegetic music. The first part, the pop guitar song, is within the world of the characters. They're hearing it in the movie theater. The shift to the synth part is the shift to non-diegetic music because it's outside the world the characters are living in. And it's more representative of the emotions we're feeling as an audience. And as you can probably already guess, most film scoring is non-diegetic. So anyways, we'll see if this piece actually makes it into the final cut of the film. It's called Connected by David Ash, if you're curious. It's going to be playing at the Minneapolis Underground Film Fest next Thursday, October 3rd. Now it's time to say thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest. You can always email me, charlie at composerquest.com. And remember to stay in the loop at facebook.com slash composerquest, twitter.com slash composerquest, or subscribe in iTunes. And stay tuned because next up, I'm going to be announcing the next Composer Quest quest. Quest.